Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, on page 1007. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. And let me add my welcome to what Peter has already said. It's great to have you with us, especially if you're new to us. And we are in a little series over the summer looking at Mark's gospel and looking at various titles that Mark gives to Jesus. And today we look at the title we have from Mark chapter 5. Jesus, the Son of the Most High. So please do turn to Mark chapter 5 and have it open with, uh, before you as we look together at God's Word, page 1007 in the Church Bibles. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world that is deeply confused about what it means to be free and how we find true freedom. And Father, as we look this morning at the raw power of Jesus, please help us to see once again that he is the one who holds the key to our freedom and may we look nowhere else. 
And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm sure many of us remember back a few weeks ago when the Tour de France came to Yorkshire. Um, we had two lovely days, didn't we, of watching the racing uh, around these parts. Uh, it was, I gather, a huge success. Apparently, something like 2.5 million people came out to watch the racing. I gather far more than people had expected. Uh, even the hardened, experienced tour riders said that they were amazed at the level of support, the size of the crowds. Um, it was a huge success. And people have been trying to work out why it was so successful. Uh, people expected it to kind of work well, but it worked really, really well. And people have been speculating. Well, yes, of course, some people are, are massive cycle enthusiasts, and they would go, whatever happened. I guess others enjoy a nice day out in beautiful scenery. The sun was shining, so they uh, went to watch. But I think one commentator was onto something when they put it like this. They said, people flocked to watch in their millions because they wanted to feel part of something big. They knew this was a one-off event, that it wouldn't happen very often. It was a global sporting event, and they wanted to be part of something big. It wasn't so much about the cycling. It was that it was something big. Uh, This week, the Commonwealth Games up in Glasgow have reminded us, I guess, of 2012 London Olympics and that sense of something big happening in our country and that sense of joy and excitement as that big event took place and we were all caught up in the the joy of that kind of big event and it felt great to be part of something big and meaningful. Last night in the rain-soaked stadium up in Glasgow, Usain Bolt was, was competing and he was mobbed by fans afterwards and one commentator observed that people wanted to touch greatness as they mingled around after the race. There is, I think, a desire in each of us to be part of something big, to be lifted up beyond the mundane routines of everyday life, the battles, the highs and lows, to think that there is more to life than the sum of the things that we are faced with day in, day out, to think that there is something big happening. I guess we long for it, we search for it. And yet so often what we long for and search for doesn't last. The cyclists fly by in a few seconds The glow of 2012 has faded. Glasgow finishes tonight. As we turn to Mark 5, we see at one level a dramatic, wonderful, life-changing story for one particular man being rescued from evil. And it is wonderful. It's remarkable. The transformation he experiences is is, um, profound. But what we'll see this morning from Mark's gospel is that this episode is about far more than just one man being liberated. It's about something far bigger. There's a far bigger story unraveling before our eyes in Mark's gospel. It is the most extraordinary story the world has ever seen. Our text, in fact, is part of a wider group of four episodes in this part of Mark's gospel, chapters four and five, that take place in and around the Sea of Galilee. Um, So just back in chapter 4, that famous account of the disciples crossing the sea in the storm um, at the end of chapter 4. And there's no doubt in the severity of the storm. They cry out at Jesus, verse 38, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And then Mark 5, verse 1, picks up the story after they've crossed the sea, after that scary storm. And that's where our story lands this morning. 
But then after our story, Mark, 20, uh, Mark 5, 21, we're told that Jesus crosses back over the sea again, back to his original place. And we have two more encounters. There is Jairus, who has a daughter facing death, who in fact does die. And we have a woman who is, in many ways, bleeding to death. These four episodes are all about people living under the shadow of death. The storm that comes, there is poor health, um, there is um, evil influences, as we see this morning. And Mark uh, is showing us here this morning that we all live, in many ways, under the shadow of death. And that shadow may come to us in different ways. Maybe it is through poor health, maybe it is through physical circumstances, Maybe it is through evil influences. And the question is, does Jesus have what it takes? What will be the story as Jesus encounters death at work in the world? And as we look at Jesus and how he encounters these evil influences, we see that his story is the big story. It is the biggest event ever to happen in the course of history. There is nothing bigger to be part of. So let's dive into the details of of Mark 5 to see how this big story unfolds before us. And first of all, we find, as we look at it, we find a deathly man. A deathly man. The story begins, verse 1, as the boat pulls up on the far shore of the Sea of Galilee after that epic crossing of the previous night. And humanly speaking, you could forgive Jesus for being slightly tired after, I guess, being awake for much of the night and being through a storm. But verse two, straight away, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came up from the tombs to meet him. We don't have it in our English translations, but Mark includes one of his favorite words at the beginning of verse two. He says, immediately, straight after Jesus steps ashore, immediately he's confronted with this man who's coming from the tombs. There's no rest, there's no time for breakfast, there's no break in the action straight away. This man comes to Jesus. And it's clear that this man is no ordinary man. He is, I think, a deathly man. Where does he come from? Well, Mark tells us, verse 2, the man comes from the tombs. Got it, the tombs. But then, verse 3, we're told, this man lived in the tombs. Okay, Mark, thank you. Helpful reminder, the tombs. But then, verse five, night and day, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Where? You've guessed it, among the tombs. I think Mark wants us to know where this man was hanging out. The tombs. No one lives amongst the tombs. They didn't do it then. They don't do it now. It was a place of uncleanness for Jews, a place of death. Um, it was almost as if this man was physically alive, but in every other sense, he was dead, a deathly man. And we see this, he's full, verse one, with an unclean spirit. He's living amongst unclean tombs. He's been cut off from society, uh, cut off from fellowship. I guess, therefore, cut off from God and his people. He is alone. He is practically dead, a deathly man. And notice the irony, because this deathly man is tremendously powerful physically. Uh, We're told that he, uh, no one could bind him, verse three. He was, I guess you could say, free to go wherever he wanted to. No one could stop him. They, They couldn't stop him. He was too strong. And so he could go all across the countryside, particularly the tombs. So he was, in one sense, a free man. 
No one could bind him. And yet the irony, of course, is that this free man was horrendously held captive by a force greater than himself. He was captive to an evil force, we see, and living, therefore, under the shadow of death. On one hand, free. On the other hand, completely bound. Completely captive. It's a striking picture of a man living under the shadow of death, faced with evil. And yet, it is also, I think, a picture of what every person in this world is like, apart from Christ. We don't have to be possessed in this technical sense, as this man was, by an evil spirit, to still experience the influence of the evil one as we live under the shadow of death. Don't we see his influence in our modern materialistic society people rush around feeling free they feel empowered by what money can do for them they feel empowered by the fact that they can choose where to live and what job they can hold and where they can go on holiday the salaries may be higher than they used to be houses bigger than they were in the past holidays more luxurious in many ways you could say we are the freest generation ever to live And yet, it doesn't take long to realize that all those surveys suggest that cases of depression are going up. Anxiety is increasing. Self-harm is increasing. People work harder and longer to earn the money they think they need to buy the house they think will give them the freedom that they long for. And that job ensnares them with stress and sleepless nights. The house they get eventually does not give them all that they long for. They feel depressed that the house does not come through. And in this day and age, we are surrounded by people who are in one sense free and, on the other hand, completely captive. And the devil loves to confuse people about freedom, doesn't he? Remember back to Genesis 3, when we first see how the devil works. The serpent, he comes and hisses in the ear of the woman, did God really say? Can you really trust God? Is it really worth going God's way in the world? Wouldn't you be more free if you went a different way, your own way? That is the message of the serpent, the evil one in the world. We can't trust God. You're better off on your own. It sounds so freeing, and yet it is a road to captivity, of being bound I think of the story of uh, Peaches Geldof in the news recently. A sad story, a person who looked so free in the world's eyes. I guess some of us might even have envied some of what she had. She came from a famous family. She had a, a, a famous job. She was, I guess, well off. She was well-known, rich, socially mobile. You could say she looked the picture of freedom in the modern sense. And yet we discovered a few weeks ago that her life ended through an addiction to drugs. There is no freedom there. Uh, this week is the anniversary of the start of World War I. It is a time to remember rightly the sacrifice many gave to win for us a certain kind of freedom in this country. And yet, as we think about that great war, we remember that often humans use their freedom for selfish and greedy ends. We fight and we quarrel and we kill. So often freedom turns to death. 
And so this deathly man of Mark 5 is a picture of life in a fallen world. He reminds us that no matter what we do, we are trapped in a bigger story. And no matter how much we might distract ourselves with subplots and side stories, this big story is heading for destruction. A deathly man. So what can Jesus do? Faced with this deathly man, faced with this fallen world, well, next we see a decisive victory. It seems that the devil knew that a new power had arrived in the area, and I think what happens here is he goes on the offensive. Uh, Notice that uh, Jesus doesn't go looking for the man. It's, It's the strong man who comes looking for Jesus. He's picking a fight with Jesus. And we find that this man is not just possessed by one or even two evil spirits. No, we discover in verse nine, there is a legion of demons. A legion was a battalion of Roman soldiers up to around 6,000 of the best fighting soldiers, the kind of troops you'd send in first into a battle. And here it seems that Satan has gathered together 6,000 of his best, all located in one person as he attempts to have a go at this new power that's arrived on the scene. And so his agent rushes forward to Jesus to confront him. But it doesn't go very well. Uh, It's a rather pathetic first strike. Uh, Look at verse six. Uh, When he saw Jesus, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. I think that means that uh, Satan was trying to overwhelm Jesus. But as he got nearer, the sheer majesty, the sheer power of Jesus drove him to his knees. But he still keeps trying. I think verse seven continues. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high? Now, apparently back in those days, um, magicians and people trying to uh, perform exorcisms uh, followed a certain pattern, a certain technique. Uh, The first thing was to to know your opponent, the person you're trying to um, Exercise the spirit trying to exercise. The next step was to name that spirit. And once you named the spirit, you then had power over that spirit. You became the master. And then you could then tell the spirit where to go. So you know, you name, and then you command. That was the pattern. And I think that's what the evil spirits are trying to do. They, they come to Jesus, step one. Then verse seven, they, they name him Jesus, son of the most high. It's a sort of faltering attempt. He's on his knees. But notice what happens next, verse seven. The evil spirits say through the man, swear to God that you won't torture me. Swear to God. He, he's saying to Jesus, I'm trying to command you not to do something. I, I'm, I'm naming you. I'm now trying to control you. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm comm- giving you a direct command. He's got the name right. Jesus, Son of the Most High, but we'll see it doesn't work. Uh, that, that title, uh, Son of the Most High, is a reference, I think, back to the Old Testament where we read about um, the God Most High. It's a title used of the God of Israel by other nations, the Gentiles. So think of um, Daniel in, in Babylon in exile. Uh, he talks about his God of Israel as the God Most High. In other words, there may be lots of other gods around in the other nations, but there is only one true God, the God most high. And so Daniel uses this title to explain to the watching world that the God of Israel is the God most high. 
And I think the same is happening here in Gentile country across the Sea of Galilee. These spirits know there are lots of gods around, if you like, but there is only one God most high, and they have met his son in the person of Jesus. Jesus, the son of the most high. These spirits have the right name for Jesus. He is indeed the most high, or the son of the most high. And it's because they've got the name right that they have no chance to control Jesus. In a moment, the battle is over. Jesus makes the the counter move. Do you see how he does it? He, too, names his opponent. He says, what is your name? Legion. And then he then uses that name. And the results are clear. Verse 13. Jesus gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. In other words, one son of the Most High in the red corner, 6,000 demons gathered together by their leader to conquer this one son. Outcome? There's no contest. There is a decisive victory because they have met the Son of the Most High. Now, what about these pigs? Uh, We've heard of red herrings. We now discover pink pigs. Uh, What should we make of these pigs? Why does Jesus allow these demons their request? What about animal welfare? What about these poor farmers who own these 2,000 pigs? That was a lot of money. That was generations of hard work building up the flock or the herd. And in just a moment, they're gone, rushing over the bank into the sea. So what should we make of these pigs? Well, it's a good question. Uh, There are as many different answers as there are commentaries out there, just so you know. For what it's worth, this is how I understand the pigs. You can take it or leave it. I think Jesus uses the very visual consequences of his exorcism to show the watching audience that what he had said he could do, he actually did in practice. The fact the pigs uh, rushed down into the sea and died was proof that the man had been liberated from his oppressors and that they had indeed gone into the pigs. So at one simple level, it's a physical demonstration that Jesus had indeed had power over these evil forces. But I think at a more profound level, Mark is showing us something uh, very deep. He, he wants us to think back to Mark 4 and that epic crossing of the sea in the storm. Do you remember the words of the disciples? They say to Jesus in their fear, don't you care if what? If we drown. See, they were people living in the shadow of death and they feared drowning. And we get to Mark 5, those words still echoing in our ears and we see Not a man drowning, but pigs drowning. And I think these pigs show us that this is what the evil one would do to all of us if he could. That he is out to destroy us. He wants to use this shadow of death hanging over us to wipe us out. And if he could, he would. And he does with the pigs. But Jesus won't allow it for a human life. But the pigs show us how evil how destructive the evil one is. And it shows us, but for Jesus, this man would have gone the way of drowning and of death, the way the disciples feared.
What about us sitting here 2,000 years later? I suspect our stories are less dramatic than this man. I suspect many of us haven't encountered a person who's actually possessed in this way by an evil spirit, although it does happen in this world. What does this mean for us? What kind of rescue can we expect from Jesus? Well, you know, as you flick forward in Mark's gospel, you'll realize that this attack from the evil one on Jesus, the Son of the Most High, is not the only attack. As we get to the end of the gospel, we realize that there is one more attack this evil one uh, attempts on Jesus. Because as we read through Mark's gospel, we find that there was another time when a man was bound and cut, another time when a man cried out in agony, and this other man didn't just live amongst the tombs. He actually died and was placed in a tomb. And at that moment, the evil one must have thought that he had finally had victory over Jesus, the Son of the Most High, because this one had finally died. He must surely have won now that this son had died, placed amongst the dead. But of course, we know that this is all part of the glorious plan of redemption, that the grave could not hold the Son of the Most High. The tomb is now empty. He is now alive again. And what the devil thought was his moment of victory was in fact the moment of his final and complete defeat. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that um, through the cross, the powers are disarmed. He would accuse us. We are now free, liberated from the evil forces that would bring us down and tempt us into slavery. The cross is the decisive victory for each one of us. We've seen a deathly man. We then see a decisive victory. And it would be lovely to stop there and to head off for our lunch. But Mark doesn't stop there. It would be lovely just to have that picture of the man now well and in his right mind and dress sitting there and think, wonderful, a picture of salvation. We can stop there. But Mark doesn't stop there. You see, he has one final thought for all of us here this morning. Because as we finish the story, we see a divided response. There is a divided response. There's a response of this rescued man. He was facing death. He is now well again. Uh, Forget Usain Bolt, a person of greatness maybe. This rescued man has met true greatness. And so it's understandable that verse 18, he begs to go with Jesus. He has found the one big event taking place in world history and he wants to be part of it. Where else would he want to go? But Jesus has a different plan for this man. Look at verse 19. Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And he does. Verse 20, he goes and tells the whole region of the Decapolis. And he must have been a busy man because when we flick forward in Mark's gospel, we find that Jesus returns to the same area, the Decapolis in Mark 7, we're told that in verse 31. And just a few verses later, in the beginning of Mark 8, a great crowd comes to Jesus from that very area, 4,000 men, and I assume wives and children as well. That man had been busy spreading the news of salvation, spreading the news of this Son of the Most High. 
And that response of the man who's been transformed is surely the, the response each of us should have when we have encountered our rescuer who has saved us from the bondage of the evil one and of death. When we realize that we have indeed found our salvation in him, we should have this man's passion. Because there is no other story in this world where people can find rescue from the evil one and from death. Every other story ends apart from this one. So he is an example of the right kind of passion when he has encountered the Son of the Most High. But there is another response. That's the rescued man, but then there's also the locals. See how they respond. They hear about the pigs. They rush over to Jesus. They see the madman now sane and restored. And do you know what they say? Verse 17. They basically say to Jesus, we would rather have our pigs back. They look at this man. He's been wonderfully, miraculously transformed. Actually, we'd rather have our pigs back. If we could go back in time, please leave us, Jesus. We don't want your kind of story at work in our circles. We don't like what you're doing. Now, maybe that they were indeed scared. Mark says they were fearful. But I think there's a bigger thing going on here. They didn't want this son of the Most High to disrupt their lives. They were far more concerned about their pigs than about the salvation of an individual. And there may be some here this morning who have that same attitude to Jesus. We hear rumors of salvation and of new life and forgiveness. We hear uh, snapshots and insights to what Jesus offers. And yet people say, I could come to church and listen to the Bible and find out about Jesus, but I would prefer to have a lie-in and to keep my normal pattern of life. I just don't think so. I could listen to the man who claims to bring me eternal life, but actually I'm just rather busy with my work and it just doesn't quite fit in with my diary. There might be eternal life on the table, an offer of uh, the freedom from shame and guilt, the offer to free myself from the need to justify my existence through hard work, but I'd rather not find out about it. It's, it's just too much hassle. We'd rather have our pigs back, Jesus, if that's all right. I wonder if that's what we're thinking here this morning. It's a lovely story. I'm glad for that man that he was restored. But actually, I don't really expect to meet Jesus myself. I don't really expect to have him transform my life. I don't really expect to go there. But as I finish this morning, why wouldn't we want this from Jesus? Why wouldn't we want to be part of this story? For it is the story. For in Jesus, the Son of the Most High, we find the biggest story in the universe. It is the story of the one who has conquered evil, who has conquered death. And the offer is there for each of us to be part of that story. Let's pray. Father, our world so often is confused about what freedom looks like. And Father, we thank you that in this amazing encounter, 
Jesus shows us what it means to be liberated from evil and from death. Father, please help us not to settle for a pale reflection of that liberation. Help us not to believe a lie that we can find it somewhere else in this world. Father, please fill our hearts afresh with joy. If this has been our experience, if we have met Jesus, please may we leave today rejoicing afresh that we can now look forward to life stretching through eternity because of Jesus. Father, please help us to see afresh that Jesus is the Son of the Most High. Amen.